0: Grab your Bibles now because it's time for worship in the Word. Let me just tell you my my philosophy on worship. So many times you hear people say like, oh, the worship was good this morning. They're talking about the music portion. The whole time that we're here from the beginning of the service to the end of the service is all worship. Even the 10-minute section that all the introverts hate. I didn't have to say what it was because you know that's worship. It's saying God is worthy. I'm gathered together with God's people, and I want to spend time with God's people. Fellowship with other Christians is worship. Uh, Man, hearing preaching from God's word says he is worthy, and I want to hear what he has to say for my life. And so now we're getting ready to worship in the word together. So turn to Romans chapter 1 in your Bibles. If you don't yet have the Hui call app, there's time to download it right now because inside the Hui call app, you click on today's message uh, and you can click on, uh, click on our series, Roman, click on today's message. There's a button that says fill in notes. If you click on that, everything we're going to put on the screen is going to be in those notes. Uh, all the verses that we quote is going to be in those uh, notes that you have there. Or just grab a sheet of paper and, and jot down some thoughts as we go through this. Uh, but we're, we find ourselves in the book of Romans. Uh, we're going to do the book of Romans verse by verse. And so uh, we just got started uh, just a few weeks ago, probably the I think the first Sunday after Easter. And so this puts us about 14 or 15 weeks in series, and so if you missed anything, you can get caught up on the app if you'd like. Uh, But also, if you're a first-time guest here at Who We Call, let me just say thank you so much for being here with us today. We're delighted that you would worship with us. Uh, If you're looking for a church family, I believe... Could be wrong, uh, but I believe we're the best church since the book of Acts. Uh, Could be biased, possibly, but it doesn't mean that I'm wrong. Uh, But uh, again, if you're looking for a church family where we preach the Bible and you can feel loved and accepted, you're in the right place here today. So I want to encourage you, if you're looking for a church family, man, jump in with us both feet here. We would be delighted to serve Jesus together with you. But we're going through the book of Romans uh, of, of all of the passages of Scripture in the Bible. Probably outside of the book of the Revelation, I think Romans chapter 1 is probably one of the toughest passages of Scripture in the New Testament. Now, that's saying a lot because the New Testament says some hard stuff. But Romans chapter number 1 kind of hits a little bit closer to home in the world that we live in today because it feels really personal. And over the next couple of weeks, let me just say today's message is hard. Uh, It's going to be hard to receive, but I just want to encourage you to hang in there, process through it, allow the seed of the Word of God to find good soil in your heart so that you can grow. It's going to be hard. Next week is going to be a little bit harder. Then the week after that's going to be ridiculously hard, and after that it's just going to get bad. And then we're going to get to Romans chapter 2, and it's going to be a little bit lighter. It's going to let up a little bit, okay? So uh, if you walk out of here going, wow, that was pretty rough, uh, bring a seatbelt uh, next week, uh, bring a helmet, uh, bring a fire-retarded suit. Uh, I don't know what you're bringing, but it's hard. But here, I hope you'll you'll take away this. God's word is difficult, but it's there to help me grow. And so there's not parts of the Bible that are bad, and I'm certainly not going to apologize for what the Bible has to say by any stretch. But it's just, there's some difficult parts. Uh, again, Romans 1 sounds really personal, uh, because while Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago to the church at Rome, Rome was a, a, a large, affluent city uh, in the middle of the Roman Empire, the headquarters of the Roman Empire. They were rich. Uh, they were very idolatrous, Uh, There was a lot of sexual immorality that was taking place in Rome, and people kind of had come to the point where they said, we don't really need God anymore because we're smarter than that. And there's a lot of parallels between the the city of Rome and modern-day America. So as we go through this and we talk about people who profess themselves to be wise but are actually fools, as we take a look at those who have taken God out of his rightful place and put themselves in his place, as we begin to look at things like sexual immorality and as we get in deeper into Romans chapter 1 and even homosexuality, it's going to sound like, wow, pastor's just railing against things that he's seen on on the news or pastor watches too much Fox News or something like that. Look, I don't watch Fox News at all. I can't handle it. My heart won't allow it. But here's what I do know. This sounds really personal because it is personal. Because the human heart never changes. I had the opportunity to talk to um, our new missionary family. I'll introduce them to you at the end of the the service here today via video. Uh, Dave and Debbie Board, they serve in Cambodia. And I was talking with them this past week, and if you have the Hui Call app, you can take a look at, uh, we talked for an hour. Our entire hour-long conversation via Zoom is available on uh, the Hui Call app. You can watch that. But I asked him, I said, hey, Dave, I know things are a little bit different in Cambodia. Because he had mentioned, like, you know, when they, when they have new converts and people come to Christ, and he, before he'll baptize them, he makes sure that they've taken down all the idols in their house, like literal statues that they have. And he says, we want to make sure that before they, they get baptized that they're really committed to following Christ, and so we make sure that they're taken down all their idols and they're really living for Jesus and things like that. And I said, hey, Dave, let me just ask you a quick question. I said, what are the sins that you see people struggle with in Cambodia? I imagine it's a lot different than America. I mean, I said, for America, uh, the cancer of America, I believe, is pornography and sexual immorality. Like, it's a cancer. It ruins everything that it touches. I said, on the, 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 the other side of that, Americans are very given over to materialism and money and wealth and status and stuff. Um, you know, what do people struggle with in Cambodia? And he kind of laughed. He said, well, I would probably say pornography and materialism. I was like, stop it. He said, no. He says, everyone has unchecked access to the internet and they're seeing things that they've never seen before in their life via a mobile phone or a, a, a mobile device. He said, they see what the Western world has to offer and they want all that stuff and they're willing to do whatever it takes to get more stuff. I thought to myself, the human heart is exactly the same. Paul tells in Romans chapter one about a group of people who were wholly given over to sexual idolatry. And it really hits home for us because it's very familiar with our society today. What do People in Cambodia uh, struggle with sexual idolatry, it's the exact same thing. So the human heart never changes. That's why the Bible, while it was written 2,000 plus years ago, it's so applicable today to everything that we go through because the human heart is still depraved, it's still wicked, it still needs healing. Uh, And the Bible gives the prescription for that healing. Romans chapter 1, we're going to start, we're going to back up to verse number 16. And read through verse number 22 here today, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse number 16. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God that has the capability to save our souls. Verse 17, he tells us that in the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith we get to verse number 18, we find out that the wrath of God, God's judgment and anger against sin is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So verse number 19 and 20 says, God has showed himself unto all people through creation. He's shown his power. He showed the, the relevancy and the actuality of the Trinity. That's the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, has been clearly revealed unto all people. Here's the really important thing. So that they are without excuse. Nobody has a reason to say, well, I didn't know that there was a God because he's clearly revealed himself in all people. Now, we get to verse number 21. Because that when they knew God. So again, clearly revealed. They know who God is. They glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. So if God has clearly revealed himself unto all people, the question is, why don't we worship him? If God has shown himself in in creation, we look and we see that there's a sunrise, there's a sunset, we have breath in our lungs, that that we are alive by God, Oxygen that we breathe and oxygen comes from plants uh, that put off, that take all of our exhaust that we put out, carbon dioxide, they take it and they send us back oxygen, which is not something that happened by accident. It's a fascinating fact of, of the way that nature is created. We look at that and we go, okay, there is a God. We can't look at this and say that this is an accident. We know that there's a God. Why don't we worship Him? Well, I mean, the natural response to the knowledge of God should be worship and gratitude. Hey, there's somebody up there that's created me. I should be thankful that I have breath in my lungs today. I should be thankful that I was able to eat breakfast this morning. I I should be thankful that I just woke up this morning because a lot of people didn't wake up this morning. I should be thankful that I live in the United States of America, which is a nation where people to this day are trying to get to because they see our nation as a nation of opportunity. Every time that I see on the news is some cargo container full of people coming from somewhere in Southeast Asia where they paid thousands of dollars to be smuggled into the United States, I think to myself, I just woke up here one day. I'm blessed. And so obviously, our response should be gratitude. I'm thankful. Our response should be worship. God, what do you want from me? Whatever you've given me, I wanna give back to you out of gratitude, out of love for you. That's the default response that we should have. If you've got your Bible still open, turn over to Romans chapter two in your Bible. Romans chapter two, verse number uh, four. Romans chapter two, verse number four says, "Despises thou the riches of God's goodness, forbearance, and long suffering? Are are you mad that God is long suffering, that He's gracious, that He's kind, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Because God is so good, our desire should be to turn to Him." Because God's been gracious to us, our desire should be to turn to him. What do you want from me? It's yours because you're so good. That's the default response that we should have. Why don't we do that? Because as man rejects God, as he is clearly seen, the only other option to that is idolatry. Now, idolatry is when we take God off of his throne where he belongs and we place someone or something else up there. My daughter Makili, when she was like four, uh, she asked if she could get a cat. And to that, I said, no, we're not cat people. Uh, cats are filthy animals. They're disloyal animals, right? At least you got dogs are loyal. The cats have no loyalty whatsoever except to themselves, right? Sorry, Carrie. Uh, I'm not a cat person, uh, Carrie has a cat sanctuary where he takes in stray cats and lets them run amok in a house. Uh, Not my kind of guy. Uh, But uh, I I couldn't do it. I I love his heart for it. I love his heart for it. I just couldn't do it. But she asked if we could get a cat, not getting a cat. And she said, well, can we at least get a fake cat? Sure. We'll get a a, a stuffed animal and have a cat and stuff like that. And she says, no, no, no. I want the cat that goes like this. (laughs) That's not a cat. That's an idol. She was like, yeah, I want it. No, 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 we don't have idols in our house. And so I had to explain to my daughter, uh, a four-year-old, that is an idol, that's a false god. And again, if you've never had the opportunity to to walk down through Chinatown or some of the other businesses here in town uh, where there's uh, a bunch of little statues out there and some food and some candles, maybe some incense burning, we would look at that and we'd say, hey, idolatry, I get it. False gods, I get it. I don't do stuff like that. And so we might think that we're off the hook when it comes to idolatry. But please understand, idolatry isn't just statues, it just isn't carved uh, pieces of wood or, or molten pieces of uh, of metal that we have, so that we set food out to. Idolatry is anything that we put above God as an act of worship. Now again, you might be saying, Pastor, I come to church on a Sunday morning, like obviously I'm a Christian, obviously uh, I follow God, obviously He's number one. That's not the case at all. And it's important to note that as we go through Romans chapter one, this is the uh, It shows the degeneracy of the fallenness of man. The unsaved man has said to himself, I don't need God, I've got something else instead. And we see this de-evolution, this degeneracy into sinfulness, wickedness of man. It's talking about the unsaved man. So if you're a Christian here today or you've been saved or born again, you're a child of God, this doesn't necessarily directly apply to you, this, this process that we're getting ready to go through excuse me, in Romans chapter 1. But please understand, there's not a single person in this room that's above idolatry because it's a heart condition. For example, when someone says, hey, pastor, we're not going to be here for the next three months because we've got, you know, football. Okay, you have taken football, and you've taken God out of his rightful place as a place of worship, and you put football on top of that. Football now has become idolatry. That's what it is. It's it's something that's been in place of God. Now, all of us would look and say things like drugs, alcohol, sexual immorality, all those sinful, terrible, bad, awful. Okay, I'll give you that. And so sometimes it's easy to identify those types of idols, but it's very difficult to really search our own hearts to find idolatry for itself. For example, what if idolatry is not something sinful? Is it a sin to watch television? I would say probably not. Is it a sin to watch three hours of television a night? I would say probably not. But I would say, just stay with me for a second, I would say it's a sin to watch three hours of television a night and then at the end of the day say, I just don't have time to read my Bible. Because now television has become idolatry in your life. For people who can scroll endlessly on their phone for hours a day yet still can't find time to pray. I would venture to say that social media or whatever it is on your phone that has captured your attention has become idolatry in your life. Again, when somebody can name every single football team and who their quarterback is and how many yards they've thrown for and the running backs and how many yards they rushed for and uh, the last you know 12 Super Bowl teams and who their MVPs are, but you can't name the four Gospels in the Bible, I would say that there's a possibility that football has become idolatry in your life. And again. Is football sinful? No, I think it's incredibly boring, but not sinful, okay? Uh, but I grew up in Kentucky, like basketball is, a, is its own religion there. Uh, but again, we, we have to look at our hearts to say, has this become idolatry for me? Because when we take God out of his rightful place, this is important to know, when God is no longer God, there is now a God vacuum. You've got to fill it with something. Again, even the atheist or the agnostic. The agnostic would say, I don't really know if there is a God or not, but there could possibly be, but no one could know for sure. Or the atheist who says that there is no God. There is someone or something that is God for you. And for many of those people, they themselves become God. And so if you were to talk to an atheist, nobody would say like, oh, I believe that I'm God and God is not. But they would say, You ask them the question, who determines right versus wrong? Well, I do. Who determines good versus evil? I do. Who determines what you should do and what you shouldn't do? I do. Who determines what you should do for the rest of your life? I do. Okay, so you have become God and you've created a religious structure where you are at the top and you are the arbiter of good versus evil. You've become your own God and you have become an idolater. So there is no such thing as a God vacuum. If God doesn't exist, then you have another God that you worship somewhere along the way. That's just how mankind works with our heart. I said last week that if I wasn't a pastor, I'd probably want to be a medical doctor because the human body is just an absolutely fascinating uh, piece of machinery that God has created. If I wasn't able to be a medical doctor, I'd probably want to be a psychologist because the human mind and psyche and the way that we, we interpret the world and we react to it and the way that our emotions get involved with our mind and the things that our mind remembers and things like that, fascinating to me as well. And so uh, imagine my excitement when I came across uh, one uh, theologian and author who had basically written out man's response to God in modern psychological terms. This is fascinating to me. He said, first of all, there's trauma, which is a traumatic experience generally involving something negative or threatening to the individual. And I I just read that one sentence and I thought to myself, what could possibly be, be more traumatic than the wrath of God? God's righteous, burning, hot anger and hatred towards sin. And when we encounter the wrath of God, I would say that that's traumatic. The author goes on to say, in the case of Paul's analysis, the trauma is produced by encounter with God's self-revelation. For various reasons, God's presence is severely threatening to people. God manifests a threat to human moral standards, a threat to the quest of autonomy, and a threat to the desire for concealment. God's revelation represents the invasion of light into the darkness to which people are accustomed. So again, you're telling me that there's this God who tells me that I'm wrong. There's this God that tells me that I have to change. There's this God that says that all the things that I do in secret one day will be exposed for everyone to see. I don't like that. That's problematic. Because if I can't do my own thing and I can't go my own way, what are the consequences of that? And so... The righteousness of God provides a a front to our own desire for self-autonomy. And psychologists tell us that when there comes trauma, there comes repression. In psychological terms, repression may be defined as the process by which unacceptable desires or impulses are excluded from consciousness and thus being denied direct satisfaction are left to operate in the unconscious. In other words, this is really uncomfortable, so I'm going to shove this back really far so I don't have to think about it or process it. But the knowledge of God is simply unacceptable to the pagan who buries what he knows or at least camouflages it sufficiently so that it no longer poses a moral threat. And we see this so often even in Christians when we come to idolatry. I know what the Bible says, but I'm the exclusion to the rule. I'm the exception to God's commandment. I know that pornography is wrong, but my spouse isn't meeting my needs. I know that pornography is wrong, but I'll stop whenever I get married. I know that filling out false reports at work is wrong, but my coworker's a jerk and he's not pulling his part of the weight. And so then I'm really justified by doing what I want to do. And we conceal and camouflage the truth, make up our own version of the truth, while, get this, holding down the truth and unrighteousness, which is what verse number 18 says. So again, it requires us, because we've been faced with the righteousness and wrath of God, to either deal with it head on or else repress it. And that leads us to substitution. This corresponds to what Paul says about the exchanging of the glory and truth of God with an idolatrous substitute. What results from the repression is the profession of atheism, either in militant terms or it's less militant form of agnosticism, in other words, we don't know if there's a God or not, no one can truly know that, or the kind of religion that makes God less of a threat than he really is. Either option, atheism or false religion manifests an exchange of the truth for a lie, and the truth is, is exchanged for a lie simply because the lie seems easier to live with. Man, that's heavy, isn't it? I don't like what I hear, so I've got to come up with something that can make me feel better about where I'm going or what I'm doing. Again, we see this so often, and we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, where people say, hey, I wouldn't choose to live this way. I'm just born this way. Hey, if if I am this way and God says it's a sin, then it's God's fault because God created me this way. I'm just trying to live out my authentic self. Therefore, I can't be held responsible before God or anybody else for what I'm doing because I'm just being me. Well, you've you've now substituted the truth of God's word for something that the Bible calls a lie. This happens even, and I believe sometimes well-meaning churches and well-meaning either Christians or people who think that they're Christians, where the message of who God is is so confrontational. It's so difficult to swallow that we make up lies about God that just aren't true. For example, God loves you just the way you are and you never have to change. God knows that you're a sinner I mean, God created you that way. Why would he be angry for just being who he created? You don't have to change. That's why Jesus died on the cross, to cover your sin. Your sin is just covered by the blood of Jesus, and you don't have to change. You don't have to walk in righteousness. You don't have to walk in holiness. You don't have to follow the rules of the Bible because Jesus died on the cross to set you free from the rules of the Bible. Live however you want because God loves you anyways, And let me tell you, that is a lie. Does God love you? Always. God will never stop loving you. But the idea that you can continue in your sin and not be on the receiving end of God's judgment just isn't a biblical truth. Please understand that Christianity is is a faith where you can come as you are. I love the, the idea of Christianity and the fact that you don't have to clean up your act and then come to Jesus. You can come to Jesus and he cleans your act up for you. That, that's easy. But please understand, Christianity is not a faith where you can come as you are and stay as you are. You can come as you are, but please understand, you must change. Have to. You gotta be changed to be more like Jesus. And that requires us repenting of our sin. But again, it's hard and again, that's not popular today. Welcome to church. Jesus loves you. If you don't put your faith in him, you're gonna die and go to hell. And if you're a child of God and you've received his grace, you need to live like Jesus. And if you don't, you're in sin and you need to repent and change because you've displeased your heavenly father. Let's have a word of prayer and be dismissed. It's like, what. Wow. Well, I went to this other church and they just told me that God loves me and that God wants me to be rich, God wants me to be wealthy, God wants me to bless other people, God wants to bless me. And I like that blessing church a lot more than the righteousness church. Somebody's not telling the truth somewhere. Now, again, do we every single Sunday have to to talk about God's anger and wrath and judgment? No, because there's a balance of God's wrath and His anger against sin and His love and His mercy and His grace and His immediate willingness to forgive us. But what we can't do is we can't make our own version of who we think God is. Again, sometimes people think, well, I don't believe that God would send anybody to hell. And so that's not who God is. You've created your own version of God that's not really the God of the Bible then. And this happens so often in false religion is they create a version of something that sounds like it's from the Bible, but it's not really from the Bible. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses would say that Jesus Christ was not uh, around at uh, creation, that he was Jesus Christ is a created being that was created in Bethlehem, and that Jesus Christ is a lower version of God, that there's God the Father, and Jesus is a lowercase g God. Let me just tell you, that's a false religion, because the book of Hebrews tells us there is nothing in this world that was created that wasn't created by Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ in John chapter 1 was <laughs> present at creation, so you've created a version of Jesus that is not the biblical Jesus. Does that make sense? Also, when I'm talking with people, I'll ask them this question. Do you know a guy named Jimmy? Raise your hand if you know somebody named Jimmy. Okay. These are people who know Jimmy. that have their hands raised. My dad's name is Jimmy. Keep your hand up if you know my dad. Okay, like one person, right? So we know Jimmy, but you don't know the same Jimmy that I know. So you might know a Jesus, but it's not the biblical Jesus, you might know God the Father, but it's not the same God the Father that I'm talking about. And so, again, we've got to, to make sure that we're all speaking the same terminology. Again, if I were to talk to someone from a Roman Catholic faith and ask them if they've received Jesus Christ, they would say, yes, I went to Mass yesterday and I received Jesus Christ, meaning they took communion. That's not the question I'm asking. I, I'm asking really a biblical question that I should ask, have you been born again? That's a Bible term. Receiving Jesus isn't necessarily a Bible term. I always use Bible terms. Have you been saved? Have you been born again? So again, we've got to make sure that we're using the same terminology because otherwise we might be talking about two different things. So when it comes to idolatry, the abandonment of God and the pursuit of idolatry is the beginning of man's downward spiral. Again, I want you to strap in because the next two weeks here at Who we Call are going to get really, really uncomfortable, and I want you to actually just pray for me as your pastor that I would be able to communicate truth with love and grace. Uh, every single week of the world, we have first-time guests that come to our church that might not know anything about us or not, not know anything about, uh, you know, God or the Bible and things like that. And I wouldn't want to say anything that was offensive for the sake of being offensive. I believe the Bible has hard truths, but the truth of God's Word is always coupled together with a lot of love, a lot of grace, a lot of mercy, and a lot of kindness. I want to make sure that I communicate truth with love, mercy, grace, and kindness. But as we look through here, if you haven't read the rest of Romans chapter 1, you should read it this week. That's your your homework if you've never read it before. But we start off bad, like, hey, they changed the truth of God into a lie. They professed themselves to be wise, and they actually were fools. And then we get into sexual immorality. We get into homosexuality. And we begin to see the the degeneracy of mankind go down through this passage. But it all begins with idolatry. That's where it starts. And so, again... For sinful man, if we recognize that God is not God, you've got to replace it with something else, and that's the beginning of this downward spiral of mankind. We see that man's gravest error is rebellion against God. Anytime you choose to rebel against God, just know this, it never ends well, ever. You cannot disobey God and at the same time receive God's blessings. If you want God's blessings on your life, which I promise you you do, you have to do things God's way. And so when we rebel against God, it's the biggest mistake that we can make. When we're born into this world, we're born automatically in rebellion to God. We're born into this world as idolaters. We're born into this world as sinners. And if you get nothing out of today's message, please listen up for the next two minutes because I'm going to tell you the most important thing that you'll ever hear in your entire life. Okay, get this. You have sinned against God. You were born a sinner. You have rebelled against God, not once or twice, but throughout your entire lifetime. And because you've broken God's law, you stand in danger of the consequences of your sin. The consequences have already been written. It's not a sliding scale where if you've done a little bit of bad, you get a little bit of slap on the wrist. If you've done a lot of bad, you get the the same consequences for everyone. I'm going to die and go to hell to pay for my sins. You're going to die, go to hell to pay for your sins. That's already written. It's already determined. Romans chapter 6, verse number 23, the wages of sin is death. That doesn't mean you're dying of physical death. It means there's a spiritual death coming for all of us where we're separated from God for all of eternity in a place called hell that burns with real fire for all of eternity, and there's no getting out. And the worst part is that's what we all deserve. I deserve that. I broke God's law. But here's the best news that you'll ever hear in your entire life. God does not want you to die and go to hell. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he made a way for you and I to have our sins paid for by someone else, and his name is Jesus. Romans chapter five, verse number eight, is a beautiful verse. But God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if you're a sinner, and you are, Jesus died for your sins. Every wrong thing that you would ever do, past, present, and future, was placed upon Jesus Christ the day that He was put upon the cross, and He hung there as payment for my sin and for yours. But please understand, this is the most important thing. You've got to make a decision for yourself to believe that and receive it, because it doesn't just automatically get applied to account. You must be born again. You must be saved. And here's how you're saved or born again. Those two words are synonymous. You really have to believe with all of your heart. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that He died for my sins. I believe He's the only way to heaven. And I'm willing today to ask Him to save me and forgive me of my sins. That's it. You don't have to come forward to the church service. You don't have to kneel down. You don't have to pray a prayer, you don't have to cry, you don't have to talk to a pastor, you don't have to get baptized, you don't have to go through some religious experience. You may or may not get goosebumps, you may or may not feel something after it's over. None of that matters. It's a matter of faith and repentance. That's it. But you must be born again. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse number 3. No man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. This is not the Baptist way to heaven. This is not what our church believes. This is what Jesus himself says. John chapter 14 verse number six. Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. We don't get to, to Jesus Christ or go get to the Father by a church, religious works. It's by Jesus and Jesus alone. And so friend, if you've never been saved or born again, he's the only hope that you have for this life and the next. And until you are willing to receive Jesus Christ as your savior, the person who sits on top of the throne of God is you. And the Bible calls you an idolater. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not trying to be on the throne. I'm just saying I don't really know if I believe all this or not. Okay, then you have determined what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's evil, and you sit upon that throne. You have to be willing to receive it, not because you understand it all, not because you got it all figured out, not because it makes sense, but you have to receive it by faith. Faith is like, hey, I don't have it all figured out, but I believe it to be so because I believe that God is trustworthy. But when we rebel against God, that's the beginning of the end. Degeneracy begins with idolatry. Now, it's... When we talk about the term degeneracy or degenerate people, this has, has come up, especially in our vernacular in the last couple of years, vocabulary to call people degenerates as kind of a, a negative um, statement about who they are as a person. But when we talk about degeneracy, we talk about this continue, continual slide away from God and towards godlessness. That's, what, that's the Bible picture of degeneracy. When I go from the righteousness and holiness of God, and I get as far away from that as I can towards godlessness and sinfulness, that is degeneracy. And friend, I don't know if you're paying attention, but all you have to do is skim the news headlines that we see in our world today and we see that we live in a degenerate society where people have changed the truth of God into a lie. Romans chapter one literally could not be more applicable to any society and world civilization like it does apply to our current day American society. That's why, again, as we go through this, some of this is going to be like, wow, this sounds really personal. Wow, this sounds really direct because it it is so applicable to the society that we live in. So we talk about degeneracy. I'm not talking about what I think makes up a degenerate. Look, a, a guy's not a degenerate because his pants hang down and you can see his underwear. That doesn't make a degenerate. That makes somebody who dresses foolishly, maybe, you know? But that doesn't make degenerate. Degeneracy is a a move away from godliness to godlessness. That's what we're talking about. And where does it all start? It all starts with taking God out of his rightful place and putting somebody else up there on top. It begins with idolatry. When God clearly reveals himself, man then must choose to replace God. Again, God has shown us clearly what we're supposed to do. God clearly revealed himself to us, but then we clearly choose to replace God from his rightful place. That's idolatry. One author said it this way. Get this. Given the opportunity to bask in the glory of the immortal God, people have rather chosen in their folly to worship the images of mortal human beings and beasts. Rather than saying, Wow, I'm created by God. Wow, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wow, God knows me and wants me to know Him. I get to uncover the riches, the depths, the majesty of the almighty God of the universe. And more importantly than that, he wants to know the depths of me. I say, yeah, I'm not really interested in that. I want to call the shots. Yeah, I'm not really interested in that. I would rather chase after things that just are, appear to be God-like. It's fascinating to me that we as a society can replace the beauty of Marriage. Marriage is beautiful. It really is. Two sinners coming together as a vow before God to commit themselves to love and serve one another for the rest of their lives. It's beautiful. Like, had I realized how good marriage was, I would have gotten married when I was like 10. Like, it's just like, it's incredible. So don't let anybody, anybody ever tell you like, oh, marriage is bad. It's not. If, if, if your marriage is bad, you're doing something wrong. Let me just say that, okay? Because it's beautiful. But we've changed that from something beautiful that God created into something that meets our own carnal desires. I don't need to get married. I can just have multiple relationships with people ever how I want to and I never really have to fully commit to anything. Or even worse, I'm going to take this gift that God's given us of sexual intimacy inside the boundaries of marriage, which is not sinful. It's a beautiful union of the way that Jesus loves his church. And I'm going to take that beautiful thing, the sexual intimacy, I'm going to take it outside of marriage. I'm going to pervert it into pornography. I'm going to pervert it into sexual immorality. And now I'm not looking for a way to honor God with my life. I'm looking for somebody that I can hook up with this weekend or something that I can pursue my own fleshly lust with instead. And guess what? We've taken the beauty of what God's got, given us and we found a cheap substitute. <laughs> Working single adults is, is, is a blast. I love it. Angela and I had the opportunity for for three years in in California to serve as as kind of pastoral staff for single adults. It was was awesome. I loved it. But so many times single adults take something like marriage and it becomes idolatry for them. Married couples, you'll enjoy this. I've sat across the table from from single adults and they say, oh, pastor, if I could just get married, all of my problems would go away. (laughs) That's cute. (laughs) Uh, save that one more time that was so funny if I could just get married all my problems would be solved no they wouldn't because what you fail to realize is you have one sinner with a ton of problems and another sinner with a ton of problems and they come together and they don't have twice as many problems they have exponential number of problems your problems don't go away your problems increase exponentially. Now, is that a bad thing? It's not a bad thing at all, but please understand that when you think marriage is going to fix all of your life problems, you have adopted a mindset of idolatry. I've known married couples. They say, oh, we want a child so badly and praying and praying and praying that God give us a child and God's not doing it and we really want it. I want a child more than anything in the world. I go to the, the ends of the earth to get a child. Okay, do you want a child more than you want God. Are you willing to just be patient and content and say that Jesus Christ is enough. If he gives a child, it's great. If he doesn't, great. I just love Jesus and I've been blessed. Are you willing to do that? No. Now, having a child has become idolatry. Again, we sometimes think that idolatry has to be this wicked, sinful thing. Idolatry is sometimes when we take a good thing and we make it a God thing. And so be super careful with that. But so often... We don't want what God has to offer. We want a cheap substitute. I don't really want to follow God's rules, but I'll create my own morality. Where these things are, are okay for me, but I know what the Bible says, but, but this is different. Again, we take things like marriage and some guy says, well, my wife doesn't make me happy, so I'm going to find somebody that does. You've bought into a lie. You've taken the truth of God and you've changed it into a lie that says you deserve to be happy. Show me one verse in the Bible where it says you deserve to be happy. It's not there. I'll point you to five verses in the Bible that tell you you need to be holy. I'll point you to three verses in the Bible that says what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. I'll point you to verses in the Bible that says you should love your wife the way that Jesus loves his church and gave himself for it. But you'll struggle to find a verse in the Bible that says be happy. Do what makes you happy. Because you've taken the truth of God's word and you've changed it into a lie that allows you to be the idolater that you are. And so, idolatry is a problem with God because, first of all, it's a violation of the first commandment. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I want to be first. And again, I believe that God does things in order. He didn't say, thou shalt not bear false witness first. Oh yeah, by the way, I also want to be first. No, no, first commandment. No other gods before me. No idolatry. Second commandment. Thou shalt have not no graven images. I don't want you creating statues or idols. I don't want you, and again, let me just say this. I'll say this and I'll move on. People sometimes ask, is it it wrong for Christians to wear cross jewelry and stuff like that? I don't think there's any problem with, again, jewelry and stuff like that. But if you ever think for a split second that some piece of jewelry has supernatural power, or whenever I hold this, or whenever I wear this bracelet, I really feel the presence of God, you have created yourself an idol and you're in violation of the second commandment. If you have crosses in your home that has Jesus Christ on the cross you have violated the second commandment of creating a graven image in the image of God. Simple as that. Again, it's hard to hear, but it is what it is. Because here's, here's the problem. God says you're gonna one of these days trust those things more than you're gonna trust me. And you can't do that. So we'll go back to commandment number one. No other gods before me. Then, if we give ourselves over to idolatry, we've not only violated the, the first commandment, We've also violated the greatest commandment. It's interesting. Jesus was talking to a group of really religious folks, and some lawyer tried to trip Jesus up, and he said, Hey, Master, what's the most important commandment in all the Bible? What's the greatest commandment? He said, Well, what's the trick with that? (laughs) Try finding a police officer and asking him this question. Hey, police officer, I appreciate you serving our our." our city and keeping us safe and everything that you do for us. I think you should thank police officers, uh, again, because we obey authority and respect authority. And People who are willing to put their lives on the line for our safety, I think we should appreciate them. But ask the question, hey, what's the most important law that I should follow? Hmm. Kind of a trick question, isn't it? Well, you probably shouldn't murder anybody. Okay, so then it's fine if I beat somebody within a half inch of their life and leave them alive. At least I didn't kill them, right? Well, not really. So would you say that one's important too? It's kind of a trick question. There's no good answer to that. And so this guy thought he'd really gotten Jesus like, oh, what's the most important commandment in all the Bible, huh? And Jesus didn't, didn't miss a beat. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Every fiber of your being needs to love your Father first and foremost. And here's what He said, And the second commandment is like unto that, that you should love your neighbor the same way that you love yourself. And here's what Jesus said. Fascinating. I can only imagine everybody standing around and like, bro, that was an answer right there. (laughs) He said, Love God, love your neighbor the way that you love yourself. On this hang all the law and the prophets. The Bible is summed up in two commandments. Love God above everything else. Love your neighbor more, more than you love yourself. Everything else will work itself out. And you think, well, okay, the rest of the commandments. Lying, stealing, killing. All those are fine if I love God and I love my neighbor. I don't have to worry about those. So, sure enough, the Bible can be summed up into those two commandments. But idolatry says I'm going to break those commandments. God's not God. I'm God. And so when we do that, we get ourselves into serious trouble. Keep your finger here in Romans chapter 1. We're coming back. We turn back to the book of Exodus, chapter 32. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Absolutely incredible story in Exodus chapter 32. God has taken the children of Israel, about a million or so it's estimated slaves that were slaves in Egypt to the most powerful king in the world at the time, the Pharaoh. Moses went before him, says, let my people go. Nine times he said, no. The 10th plague was terrible. And Pharaoh said, get out and take all your stuff with it. But then after they left... Pharaoh goes, hey, maybe that wasn't such a great idea after all, and then Pharaoh and his army chased after them. The children of Israel find themselves at the Red Sea. There's no way to get across the Red Sea with a million people. They got kids and stuff like that, and like, there's no way we're going to make it across. And God told Moses to take his rod and part the Red Sea, and God parted the Red Sea, and they walked over in dry dry land, but the Egyptian army was coming after them, and God commanded the Red Sea to fall and drown Pharaoh and all of his army. Their enemies that was pursuing them, God defeated them in one fell swoop and provided salvation and safety for them. Incredible. They saw literally the hand of God work a mighty miracle that we talk about to this day. And then they get to Exodus chapter 32 here. Moses has gone up on Mount Sinai to talk to God. God's given Moses the Ten Commandments as we know them. Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights on the... Mount Sinai, the Bible tells us that Joshua waited down the hill waiting for him to come back, but the children of Israel didn't wait. Exodus chapter 32, when the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down out of the mount, they gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, make us gods, which shall go before us. As for Moses, the man that brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to what not has become of him. Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in your ears of your wives, of your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. All people break off all their golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, and he made a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it and made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast unto the Lord. He rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Wait a minute. You, you just saw what God did. And you then asked Aaron, hey, Moses, is taking a long time. Could you, like, build us a God that we could worship? And Aaron says, sure. You see, to follow after other gods, one has to be willing to trade the worship of the true God to worship lesser, fallible creations, Okay, we're going to set the, aside the worship of the true God. What are we going to worship? We're going to worship a big gold cow made out of earrings. What? Oh, yeah. This is the God that brought us out of Egypt. That golden cow wasn't there in Egypt. Like you literally just made that yesterday. It wasn't there six weeks ago. So they literally had to set aside God to create something, to worship something lesser than what they already had. Please understand this. Any other God in all of world history is a figment of imagination of the people who made it up. There are no other gods other than the one true God. It's not like there's a bunch of different gods that are out there and our God's at the top. And he like, has like a war, a a, a face-off with all the other gods of the world, and our God came out on top. No, no, no. There was a guy who came to our church several years ago. He he was a neat guy, but he wasn't a believer, and he was invited by one of the men of our church. and I got to talking afterwards, and and that day we had sang a song that we sang today, How Great is Our God. And um, afterwards he says, man, I really like that song, How Great of Our God. It's kind of catchy and kind of upbeat. and It's kind of neat that you guys think your God's the best. Well, our God's the only God. Well, no, that's not what the song says. It says, how great is our God? You know, it's kind of like, you know, we got spirit, yes, we do. We got spirit, how about you? No, 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 that's not what the song means. Like, our God, the only true God, is the greatest God. Nah, that's not what it means. There's a lot of other gods out there. You just think that your God's the best. And it's just like, That's not what that means at all. He's like, oh, that's fine. I I got it. I got it. He walked off. I was like, come back. You don't understand what we're talking about here. But in his mind, there's all these other gods out there, and we just happen to think that our god's the best. No, no, no. Anytime you choose to follow after another god, think about it this way. When when Samson was captured, he was placed in the temple of the god Dagon. He was chained to the temple uh, columns there and the pillars there. Do you think Dagon was a real God that, like, did stuff and, like, created stuff? And, like, uh, he's just not as good as our God. No, he's a false God. And Samson ended up tearing down the whole temple. That's why Dagon isn't a thing today because he never really was. We see Elijah go up against the prophets of Baal. Was Baal a real God? No, that's why he couldn't consume the sacrifice. Screaming, they're yelling, they're cutting themselves, they're crying out to Baal. And Elijah's like, hey, maybe Baal's in the bathroom. Give him a minute. Like, literally, that's what Elijah says. Hey, maybe Baal went on vacation. He forgot to put his out of office reply on. Give him a minute. Cry a little bit louder. Maybe he'll be able to hear. Because here's what Elijah knew nobody's coming down to take care of that sacrifice because Baal isn't real. Baal is just as real as that molten calf that was created. The molten calf, at least you could touch it. Baal's just fake all the way around. And so again, for us to believe that God doesn't exist, we have to take some fallible creation that we've made to put it in its place, and that is incredibly problematic. John Calvin once said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. If you don't want to worship God, you'll always find something to worship, Always. And once you're done with one idol and it has failed you, and it will, you'll find another idol that will take its place. Because the human heart is just looking for another idol. There's a man in our church uh, several years ago whose idol was cocaine. And we had tried to disciple him and pray with him and keep him accountable and put all types of restrictions in his place and got him a new phone, new phone number, deleted all his contacts, like... Hey, following up with him on a daily basis to make sure this guy's staying sober. Would not do it. Notice I did not say could not do it. I said would not do it. And he says, hey, I've got a friend who invited me to a 12-step program. Uh, would you be willing to come? Man, I'll try anything at this point because you don't want to walk with Jesus. And I think, again, 12-step programs point you back to a step one, find a higher power. That's Jesus. Maybe this will help. So I was willing to go. So Central Union Church over on Baratania, I went to an a AA meeting it was. As we get there, there's a group of about six guys outside that are smoking cigarettes like I've never seen people smoke cigarettes before. Like, almost taking a whole cigarette down in one drag. I mean, like the, just like the ash just goes down Like as you're watching. It's just burning. Just like, my goodness, like six of them out there. And, man, the second they finish one, they would light up another. I mean, until it started, they were just one after another after another. Then there was two guys who came in, I mean, necks like this, I mean, broad shoulders, V taper. I mean, they're wearing shirts that are two sizes too small for them. And they got like an 18 pack going on down there. I mean, just like totally shredded. You see some guy walk in, got tattoos down to his fingertips. I mean, like, every surface on his body is covered in tattoos. You see a woman walk in with an $8,000 purse, and you're just like, my soul. I love to people watch. Like, I could sit at Alamona all day long. I just love to, like, look at people and see what's going on with them, why they do what they do, and stuff like that. And as I'm watching these people come in, I thought, such a strange group of people from every walk of life that you can imagine. But as I'm watching, I'm seeing You might have given up drugs and alcohol, but you've adopted another idol in its place. The guys outside had adopted nicotine instead of drugs and alcohol. Uh, The guys that that had adopted steroids instead of drugs and alcohol. The guys who had adopted tattoos instead of drugs and alcohol. The woman who adopted materialism instead of drugs and alcohol. But the problem was is that they were just trading out idols. I don't know that they really got to the heart of the issue. Where we begin to examine our heart and says, what's broken inside of me? Because if God's not God, you're going to be constantly trying to find something that satisfies, that can truly meet that need that you have, that only God can meet. Turn back to Romans chapter 1, if you would. Verse number 22. Back up to verse 21, Romans chapter one, twenty one. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination. and Their foolish heart was dark, and professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. You see, when those who rebel against God self-identify as wise, they misunderstand the meaning of wisdom. The problem with man is not so much a lack of knowledge of God as is a refusal to acknowledge God. And I'll say this, and again, I say this, I want you to understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that smart people can't love Jesus. I'm saying that the more that you become reliant on knowledge, reasoning, science, and everything having to have an answer and everything having to make sense, the less likely you are to accept God for who he is. Because God exists in this realm of the unprovable, really deeply unknowable. God exists in this realm where we have to accept Him by faith. God doesn't exist over in this fact realm where we can point to, okay, here's how we know God exists. God doesn't exist in the fact realm over here. Okay, we can prove that God actually did this. God exists in the other realm, which is faith. And so someone who's just like, hey, I've got to see it to believe it. Okay, then you're going to struggle to accept God for who he is. Well, I have to be able to explain all of it. I've got to make all these things that we know about science fit in with faith so that we can actually explain all The stuff that's happened over here is science with what we might think about God over here. And so then we have to try to shoehorn our faith and to to meander around some of these things that we call science that may not actually be science. And so we don't leave a lot of room over here for faith. There are people who would even say that you and I are foolish for believing in God. There are people who mock our faith and say that Christianity is for weak-minded people who need a crutch to make them feel better. You have to explain some existence for why things are the way that they are so you've adopted some fairy tale book to tell you what to do. You have no way to determine right and wrong for yourself so you have to go to some book to tell you how to meander through right and wrong. You're so narrow-minded and you want to control people that you want to use your religion as a way to tell other people what they can and can't do because you're controlling and manipulative. But we're above that. We're smarter than that. We're more open-minded than that. But you, you're not. And the Bible has an answer for that. Professing themselves to be wise, they actually became fools. Because when it comes to wisdom, wisdom isn't about who's the smartest. Wisdom isn't an IQ test. Wisdom isn't what did you score on your ACT when you went into college. That's not a test of wisdom. So when you think that that's the idea, then you misunderstand. Many people who dismiss God are what we refer to as obscurantists. This is a person who deliberately prevents the facts or full details of something from being known or a person who refuses to deal with the knowledge that's available to them and will not examine data that might run contrary to its own conclusions. Some people have accused Christians of being that. Hey, I'm willing to look at evolution. I've read books on evolution. I don't buy it. It's a theory, and it runs contrary to the truth of God's Word. I just can't accept it. I've read philosophers that were agnostics and atheists. They have fascinating things. I've taken comparative religion classes and seen what the rest of the world has to do. Fascinating stuff. I'm not just keeping blinders on. I want my kids to be able to see the world for what it has to offer and be able to talk through truth with them. I don't think it's wise that we shelter our kids from everything that might harm them and then turn them loose at 18 to go into a public university to have their faith torn down. I believe we need to have conversations as teenagers about what we see in the world and why these things are destructive. I think it's important that we talk to our kids. Hey, our family's not going to watch this movie and here's why. They need to understand that and they need to be able to process it through it for themselves but many times people don't wanna look at what the Bible has to offer because they've already made their mind up. And again, if what you're saying is true and there is a God and he's given me commandments and I've broken them, then there's only one solution to this. I have to follow him. And I don't wanna do that. And so the Bible confronts them with an uncomfortable truth. And so that's why God's angry. God's not angry because people don't know about him. God's angry because people willingly know about him but willingly reject him. That's God's problem. That's why God is angry. That's why the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness of men. And wisdom is more than knowledge, wisdom is the application of knowledge. So it's not a matter of, like, hey, I need to get smarter, it's I need to follow the Bible. Again, people who dismiss God, dismiss the Bible, would consider themselves wise. They know more about life. They see religion as something primitive a need to believe in something greater than yourself. But I believe in me. I believe in what I can figure out. I believe in reasoning. I believe in philosophy. Okay, that's fine. You just created yourself as your own God. But that's not wisdom. See, wisdom, the Bible tells us, Begins with God. James chapter 3, verse number 13 Who's a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. The book of Proverbs is a fascinating book. If you've never read through it, you've got to read it. It's just, it's a book of wisdom. You want to be wise, read Proverbs and obey it. Simple as that. But Proverbs breaks down categories of four different types of people. There's the wise man, which all of us should desire to be. I want to be wise. I wanna follow after knowledge and do it wisely. The next type of person is the fool. They know what to do and they know it's right, they just don't wanna do it because they've already made up their mind. Then there's the simple. The simple just didn't know any better. They haven't really processed through wisdom yet. They don't really know what's right from wrong, but when the simple are confronted with truth, they say, hey, okay, I wanna do that, I wanna do what's right. My wife and I, when we were married, we were clueless. We didn't get premarital counseling. We didn't, weren't in church. We weren't walking with Jesus the way that we should. We did a lot of foolish things. But the moment that somebody says, hey, what you're doing isn't right, we're like, okay, we want to be right. Hey, I wouldn't do that if I were you. Okay, tell me what to do, and that's what we'll do. We were simple. We didn't know any better. But the moment we were confronted with wisdom, we wanted to be wise. So there's the the wise man, the fool, the simple, and then there's the scorner. This is one who hates wisdom and hates people who love wisdom. And they've made it their life goal to tear down wisdom, to to buck up against this system, to tear down this this created structure of wisdom, and everybody just needs to be able to do what they want to do on their own, and nobody should give them grief for it. I sometimes explain those types of people in this way. Knowledge, it all begins with knowledge. Knowledge, in this example, let's just say the stove is hot. Everybody knows that stoves, after they've been on, are hot. You shouldn't touch them, right? That's knowledge. What do you do with that? Well, foolishness says, the stove is hot. I know that. Let me touch it. It can't really be that bad. I know that I shouldn't. It might be harmful, but how bad could it really be? That's the fool. You know what to do, but you don't do it. The simple says, I'm not even sure what you mean by hot. Let me touch it and experience it. I don't. I don't even, I, what does that even mean? The stove is hot. Let me give that a shot. If <laughs> you've ever been around a two-year-old who wants to stick their hand on the stove, they, they don't know any better. It's not a matter of you know it's hot, but you did it anyways. The scorner says, "Sure, it's hot and it hurts, but it's fine. Don't let anybody else tell you what to do." That's the scorner. They hate wisdom. They don't want you to know wisdom. They mock wisdom. They make fun of wisdom. And again, you read through the book of Proverbs, it's going to tell you what the scorner, what we should do with the scorner. But then there's the wise man, which all of us should desire to be. The wise man says, because the stove is hot, I'm not going to touch it. Again, we're all working with the same knowledge, the stove is hot. What do you do with that knowledge? That determines whether you're a fool or whether you're wise. But the wise man also says, hey, because the stove is hot, let me make sure that everybody knows it. Nobody touches it. That's wisdom next level. I want other people to know wisdom. Hey, maybe there's people out there that were getting ready to touch the stove and they didn't know any better. Let me warn them so that they'll know. And the Bible says that the wise has the ability to make the simple wise. The Bible says if you consider yourself a wise person, be with wise men and you'll become even wiser. The Bible says wisdom is like one of the principal things in life to get. Wisdom. But the problem is is the world has its own version of wisdom, which is actually foolishness. Oh, you don't have to be married to have sex. The Bible tell you that. That's just religion trying to keep you down. You can do what you want. You should actually probably experiment. How will you know if you're sexually compatible with your, your mate or not unless you actually have sex before marriage? Like, I mean, that just makes sense, right? It's foolish to save yourself for marriage. What are you saving yourself for? That's silly. We've created, the world's created its own wisdom, but here's what the Bible says. The wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. It's opposite. But the problem is, is when you and I buy into the world's version of wisdom, we're buying into an idolatrous structure. They replace God with their own version of God and profess themselves to be wise, but actually became fools. There's an article that um, came out like two weeks ago. There's a study that's been going since the 1990s that was studying alcohol use uh, amongst people ages 20 to to like 55 or something like that. It was a 30-year study. And evidently, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation had something to do with that, which automatically makes me suspect on any of that. But that's for another day. But the study was interesting in the fact that it found that alcohol use amongst those from ages like 30 to 55 had zero Positive impacts on health and life. None. Even though they, they've told us all these years, that, you know, like you can drink responsibly, it's helpful, it, it releases tension and things like that. It helps your heart if you have a glass of wine once a day or something like that. They found that none of that was true and that the effects of alcohol use among those from 30 to 55 was almost, in every single case, negative. Negative impacts of that. So... When the world says it's okay to just have a couple of beers and relax, is that the wisdom of God or is that the wisdom of man? And sometimes things that we used to call science weren't actually fleshed out in truth after all. And so again, it's just things like that I gotta say, hey, I gotta walk in wisdom. And so again, I talk with people all the time about alcohol use. All the time. And let me just tell you this. I never see anything good come from it for Christians. Simple as that. Again, I can point you to a dozen Bible verses, and you can say, "Well, Jesus turned water into wine, and children of Israel drank wine, stuff like that." Again, that's a conversation for a different day if you want to have it. But I'm just going to say, if the Bible said nothing about alcohol use, which it does, is it wise? If it's a fact that uh, that alcohol use increases domestic violence, that's a fact. Alcohol abuse in, uh, increases child abuse. That's a fact. Alcohol abuse affects uh, increases sexual assault. That's a fact. Driving under the influence of alcohol creates 30,000 deaths a year. That's a fact. Then we have to ask ourselves the question, not is it right or is it wrong, but ask the question, is it wise? And I'm going to say, Christian, you might be able to finagle Scripture and twist it in such a way that makes it look like it might be okay, but I'll never be convinced that it's wise for a mature Christian to use alcohol. Simple as that, it's not. And so, I want to encourage you. Again, this is not a message on alcohol. This is a message on walking in wisdom. I want you to be wise. Not in the world's eyes. Because let me just tell you this. If you decide to be wise in the Bible, you will be considered a fool by the world. Oh my goodness, you guys are not having sex until you're married? That's so prudish. Okay, say what you will. It's biblically wise. We don't look at pornography like everybody looks at pornography. No, they don't. That's a lie. Uh, And let me just say this, there's a a group of books are written towards men, well-meaning, the heart behind it is really good, called it like Every Man's Battle, like every guy struggles against lust, every guy struggles with pornography, every guy, you know, this is the big fight for them. Let me just tell you this, you don't have to look at pornography, you don't have to battle against pornography, you can confess it, forsake it, never pick it up again, and you can live. So a guy asked me a couple years ago, he's like, are you trying to tell me that, that I have the ability to not look at porn for the rest of my life? Yes. Well, how do you know? I don't know. I've done it for the last two decades. I can tell you, you can do it at least 20 years and not die. It's felt like, come on. But he had bought into this idea that like all guys look at pornography, all, all guys lust, all guys look at other women. It's just like, no, 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 that's not true. That's the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of God's word says this Romans chapter six. We haven't even gotten there yet. But sin hath no more dominion over you. Sin doesn't have power over you unless you give its power. Right. So again, I want to be wise in God's no, eyes, not in wise in the eyes of the world. True wisdom always aligns with God's word, always. And when it comes to wisdom from God's word, it's always moral, it's not intellectual or educational. Look, you could have not finished high school and be one of the wisest people in the world. But by the same token, you could have 28 PhDs and be on staff at an elite college and be an absolute, utter fool. Because it has nothing to do with education. It has nothing to do with intellect. It has everything to do with morality. That's wisdom. Look, there's guys in our church that have been saved for less than five years they're some of the wisest men that I know because they know what the Bible says and they do it. By the same token, I know guys that have been saved for 50 years and some of the biggest fools I've ever met in my life because they know better, they just refuse to follow after wisdom. So wisdom is not uh, how smart we are. Wisdom has everything to do with am I willing to follow God? So two final questions to hear today and we're totally done. First of all, are there areas that you've allowed idolatry into your own life. Again, it's easy to look back at the person who says that there's no God and, and say, oh, man, what a fool. The legit question, are there any areas of your life where you've allowed idolatry to creep in? Where you say, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Well, I'll, you know, it's, I'm not necessarily putting God above that. I, I've known people who make, you know, good things Idols. There's been people that I know, shameful. Well, we're going to go to a church down the street that has a lot better production and worship music because that's really what gets us going. Well, you know that that church teaches false doctrine and sends people to hell. Yeah, I know, but they got a great show. (laughs) That is idolatry in the worst sense because you're pretending like it's about God, but it's really about your own fleshly carnal desires. Maybe... Social media. I'm just going to confess to you guys because I love you and I want to try to help you. There was a time in my life where food was an idol for me. I ate and ate and ate. And as I'm eating, I'm thinking to myself what I'm going to eat for the next meal. And I was constantly like, like I would go to the gym and I would beat my brains in and work out. I would stay on the treadmill and on the elliptical and I watched the calorie count, count up to figure out how much ice cream I can eat when I'm done with this. And it was just Idolatry. Because I grew up in a home where food was comfort. You know, if you had a good day and you got a good report card, you got to go eat dinner and celebrate, you know? Hey, if you read 10 books this quarter, we're going to give you a little coupon to take to Pizza Hut, right? How you remember that, right? You do good, you get rewarded with what? Food. Man, you had a bad day. It's okay, sweetheart. Let's have a bowl of ice cream before you go to bed. i will make everything better. You have a wedding, what do we do? We celebrate with food. Somebody dies, what do we do? After we put them in the ground and cover them up with dirt, we go back and have fried chicken. And we all sit around and eat. Man, holidays, what do you do? You eat. And in my mind, I immediately connected comfort with food. And you have a good day, drown your sorrows in food. And here's the worst part about my idolatry. My idolatry began to show out really too, because I began to gain a copious amount of weight and I became morbidly obese, Why? Not because some health concern that I had or thyroid problem. Because of my own idolatry. I'm just trying to help you. And the worst part about food is idolatry. You have to eat to live. You don't have to drink alcohol to live, but you have to eat to live. And so I had to come to a place where food is just the fuel that gets me through the day. Fuel is something that's good for me to help me. But it was idolatry and I had to had to confess it before God as a sin. And make things right with God. Maybe you've allowed idolatry to come into your life and you didn't recognize it until today. Make it right with God. Final question: Is there any areas of your life, of your life where you're being unwise? We you look at this and say, uh, might not be a sin, but is it wise? Is it a sin to watch four hours of television at night? I can't point you to a chapter and verse where he says, Thou shalt not watch more than 180 minutes. In a 24-hour period of television, not there. Is it wise? Definitely not. And again, before you decide to scroll your Facebook feed for an hour, your Instagram feed for an hour, you should probably pick up God's Word for a little bit before that. For me, I start every single day, time in the Word, time in prayer, and then I go to the gym every single day. I don't go to the gym and then read my Bible afterwards because I want to make sure first things get done first. Priorities get set from the very beginning. I want to say i got time for everything else except for God. I want to encourage you. Get your priorities straight. Is there areas of your life where you're being unwise? Where your priorities are out of whack? If so, fix those today. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, do not hit those double doors in the back until you know for sure that your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home. Most important thing in the world. After that, let's make sure our hearts stay right before God. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guests. This Sunday morning at 10am You'll find exciting classes for your keiki A welcoming church family And a message from the Bible That's sure to encourage your heart Join us this Sunday You belong here